Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. This morning we're in session eight within this series called Flourish. If you have your workbooks, you can get those out. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can get a green workbook in the lobby. It's kind of a teaching series and it's a small group curriculum. And and you'll see in session eight, the big idea is moving from proclamation to conversation. At Watermark, we're after uh, this distinctive of, of conversation. What does a conversational model look like? And so um, that's as much to do with the internal heart work that we have, that God's having a conversation with us, as much as it is to do with those outside the church walls, those who maybe you feel like it's a conversational evangelism at that point. And I want to start with some, with some data. You know, even just a question if you stop and think about it, how many people, how many people have you shared the gospel with in the last year? Is it 20, 15, 10, 5, 1, 0? I bring this question up, and, I'm, and we're going to play with it in a second. Not to condemn, not to shame, not to think, oh, man, great. I, I myself, maybe in the last year, maybe one person. Maybe one person. I, after all, I'm just a man. I'm not a super Christian. I'm not a super evangelist. I'm just like you. And I want to figure out what are the tools. We're going to be looking at John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or you use a Bible app on your phone, get it out now and walk through this whole passage with us. We're going to be in John chapter 4. What can we learn in terms of a, of a conversational model? Because some of the, some of the data suggests that there's, you know, uh, there's 79% of unchurched people, when, when surveyed, when they survey them, 79% of them said they would have a conversation about faith. And yet on the flip side, only 40% of believers actually do so. In a six-month period, only 40% actually do so. So there's a willingness. There's people that will not cut your head off if you go and talk to them about Jesus, about church, about God. And so this talk today, this talk is motivated by a question. Bucky talked about this last weekend. If you, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. But he hit the question right on the head. And if we're gonna, the church is going to reach people in the future, we have to move from this question of, what would you do if you died tomorrow? What would you do if God came back tomorrow? That was kind of like, if you're unfamiliar, that was kind of like a church ploy. Like, we're going to gloom and doom you into salvation. We're just going to shock and awe you. He's coming back tomorrow, man. Like, get your ducks in line. But actually, I love, I love this question that we should move into instead that says, what would happen if you, if you kept on living? What would happen if you kept on living and yet your life was not life to the full? Because that's a bar, that's kind of a, a bar that Jesus sets in John 10, 10. In the words of Jesus, he says, I have come to give life and life to the full. You could put the word flourishing in there. That's kind of what we're after here in this series and in this talk today. So, so think about it. The big word, there's a word that you're going to be stuck with this whole week, that I pray. And that word is surgery. I want you to think about conversational evangelism as surgery. Because there's a type of person. There's a type of person that has learned to address that question, i.e., how to improve life on this side of eternity. And that person would be the cardiovascular surgeon. No? The cardiovascular surgeon has to open this chest cavity, and they're going to town. And there may be at least two different types of, of organ situations, the context of the organs that they'll find. Maybe it's a young patient, someone that's never been operated on. They're mostly healthy. And you can see the organs in their kind of true state. 
However, conversely, if you have a patient who's maybe already had surgery before and they're, and they're not in the best shape, I've heard it described as it's kind of like um, silk webbing. The lines of which you're working on, maybe they're going in to remove a tumor. The lines are not so demarcated. You can't tell what you're working on. It requires hours and hours of skill and wisdom and nuance to go in and look at the state of the heart and find out what am I working on. And you see, I love what one author said. Uh, There's a beautiful parallel there for what we do spiritually speaking. This is what she said. In the realm of human interactions, it's no different. The extent to which we apply extraordinary patience and nuance should match the extent to which the divine anatomy of one another's souls has been distorted by sin or scarred by old wounds. Maybe that's you here this morning. We're never just having a conversation about politics. We're never just having a conversation about circumstances or tragedy. There's another conversation going on underneath the surface And if that's you this morning and you have scars, you have brokenness, you have incomplete pieces, I pray that this word would be for you. That you would know that Jesus, as the master surgeon, the surgeon general, if you will, no one is more artful and nuanced and full of the whole wisdom of the universe than he is. He wants to lay into those parts of your heart. And he wants to lay into those parts of people's hearts who are maybe far from God or outside the church walls. So let's look at John 4. We have a beautiful model here about how to play out this conversation, how to maybe be surgeons in training, if you will. So go to to John chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus, at this stage, he's already been baptized. He's around 30 years old, and he's starting his, his, quote-unquote, his ministry. He's starting the thing that God sent him into the world to do. He's recruited his disciples, and they're already hitting the road. They're on mission. They're on this journey. John chapter 4, verse 4, this is what it says. But he had to pass through Samaria... Okay, so they're on this journey, and, and, you, and some of you already know where I'm going. This is the story of the conversation with the Samaritan woman. Let me ask you a question. I actually want to hear from you. Again, conversational model. Did, did he, though? Did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? What do you think? No? Are you sure? Yes, you're sure, or yes, he did have to? <laughs> Good. Okay, so we're thoroughly challenged on this, because a lot of us answered comfortably, no. But did he? What if, what if he was actually on a divinely appointed schedule, and yes, he did have to? Because even though we know, if we look at history and we look at the maps of that time and place, there were three possible routes Jesus could have taken. And, and this was the least desirable. And you're going to find out why in a second, but let me ask you a question about this divinely appointed schedule. Jesus is on a mission. He's on a pathway, and he knows he has to make this stop. I'm going to move to application really quickly, so bear with me. Who is God in your life? Is God God in your life, or is your calendar God in your life? Listen, I'm speaking from experience. I'm not trying to condemn you, okay? I'm the guy who sends meeting requests to his wife, and so that if it's before 9 a.m. or it's after 5 p.m., at least she knew about it. So now it's sacrosanct. Don't try and say anything about that appointment because it's in the schedule. I sent it to you, and you approved it, so it's good, right? No one can touch that thing. It is holy. The calendar item is holier than thou, okay? It's far and above anything else. It's locked in there. How many of us live in that reality every single day? Is God the God of our calendars? Is he, is, he, is he the God of our schedules? Is he the God of our routes? 
can he tell us to go across the yard, across the street, or across the city if it means inconveniencing ourselves or our plans? That could be the smallest thing. My wife and I had a hectic week. Uh, we were moving, and she had the kids all day long by herself. My wife and I have seven babies, uh, seven and under. And then I was doing some of the manual labor to move the stuff. And I was leaving the house this morning. She's staying back with the kids. They, they're sick, so that's why they're not coming. And I was, like, ready to charge. Okay, I'm here to preach this morning. So I'm on my way out the door. Nothing's going to stop me now. I did all my chores, my things to get her set up, and I'm gone. And I'm going out the door, and I'm like, you need to go back in and just pray over your wife really quick. And I, I'll be the first among you to admit, I'm a, I'm a sinner, man. And I didn't want to. I kind of didn't want to. I did my last ask, and I was like, let's go. I'm free. The car is right there. I'm almost at the door. And I was like, no. If you believe in the power of prayer, that through a spoken word, you can meet God and what he wants to do here and now in the natural world, then, then, and you get prompted, you should go and pray for this person, that's a worthy detour in your route. And so... I'm not to sing my praises or or toot my horn. I'm trying to show you I almost failed in it. But he may call you into a divinely inspired route. So if we're to become conversational surgeons, God has to drive. He has to drive. Do you think there's a surgeon out there? Most people would like you to believe, oh, yeah, everyone who's in science and doctors, man, they hate Jesus. They're not Christians. Come on. You know there's a surgeon in that room who's like, Jesus, take the wheel. Because I'm about to go into this chest right now, and this is crazy. So if we want to be conversational surgeons, we have to do the same. Verse 5, So what it says. Whoops, I'm still back here. Verse 5. Now he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat right down beside the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. For his disciples had gone off into the town to buy supplies. You know what's so fascinating about this? So interesting. Nothing. Nothing, actually. It's totally normal. Jesus is tired. He has a seat. There's some water. He's thirsty. It's completely normal. Normal experiences can be used in the economy of God. Use what you have. Take these examples from my last week, okay? So last week, I had a a flat tire. Feeling deflated, Ben? Feeling deflated in your life? See what I did there? Failed facts. I had a failed facts message. I'm trying to get my daughter approved so we can go get this dental thing going on. For a week, I tried to send this facts. Communication issues in your life, Ben? It's God speaking to me here, if you couldn't tell. There's a store closed. We have to get this urgent thing from Target. The store is closed. Ever faced rejection in your life before? This was one morning. Okay, this was my whole week. This was just one morning. And yet there were so many others who had a completely different set of problems this last week. What's the application? Use the normal thing in your life. Coffee, market, work, play. Use the tools that you have laid out on the surgical table. There's nothing uh, novel about the scalpel. But that's going to be the thing that's going to go and do work. The same thing for our lives. Use the normal thing. Jesus is, is this situation teed up. He's going to talk about water. How novel is that? Verse 9. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? I'm using the new uh, English transversion, uh, translation, N-E-T. N-E-T, by the way. It's very interesting. You can learn a lot, even in your Bible app. It's got extra notes for what's going on behind the scenes. And so this version says, for Jews, use nothing in common with Samaritans. We're going to do some history really quick. 
A lot of you know this, but I, I challenge you to be shook this morning. <laughs> I challenge you to let yourself be shook by just how far diverged Jesus and his crew are from this woman, just how different they are. So the Samaritans, who are they as a people? There's a few of them living today. But back then, in Jesus' time, uh, he's 30 years old, so put that 30 AD after the birth of Jesus. They had the Samaritans, and 700 years prior, they occupied Israel. There was an occupation, and and the Jews mixed with the Assyrians. And so they were this half-blood race, the Samaritans. And they were looked down upon, so much so that their very name, their very ethnicity was used as a slur. One of the religious elite once called Jesus Samaritan. As a, as a racial slur, you must be a Samaritan. That's how, how beat up they were. And later you'll see in this conversation with the woman, she'll ask this question about worship. She says, she says yo, you, you all do church over here, but we do church over, over here. We think this is the real location. That location that she's talking about, that Samaritan hotspot for worship, if you will, just 120 years later was burnt to the ground in an ethnic turf war. That's the situation when Jesus walks into this conversation. But, but this thing actually goes way deeper than just the history and the circumstances. And this is where I want you to hear how much of a scandal our Jesus is. I want you to find out how scandalous Jesus was in his methods to do surgery on someone's heart. How far out of his way he would go in order to pick away the broken parts and pieces and scars in this woman's heart. Because for him to even hang out with a woman was ridiculous. Just alone to hang out with a woman was bad. But then, then add on top of that the Samaritan woman, the hated race between the two of them. He risked it all. He risked everything in pulling up a chair and sharing the cup with this woman. Everything. Not just the social anxiety, but the pressure of what would happen to him if he hung out with this woman. It's hard to imagine. Because today, if we want to go on a date, say, you know, we're, we're single and we're free to mingle and we hit the dating app or we just, we're interested in someone, we get the number and we set up the date and we go hang out and we have coffee, no big deal. Back then, first century context, you got 15 uncles and, aunt, uncles and aunts who have to vet the person first and then they go with you to dinner. I'm being a little bit dramatic, but that was the context of history. In the first century, they were intensely, intimately communal people. You don't just get to go rogue and hang out and do what you will. Jesus is making himself unclean. And the Jewish standards of that time, that means you're, you're gone. You go away from that communal society. He's, he's off the beaten path in terms of surgical methods. He's into innovation. He's willing to try something that's never been tried before. And let that be an audience for his disciples who knew no better. So think about, it's hard for us because we don't maybe know Samaritans today who are still living. But even if we did, we probably wouldn't have the same tension because there's just nothing on the line there for us. But uh, let's use a more relevant example. Think about the midterm elections. That's fun, right? Let's talk about politics. Anyone sick of seeing the signs still in the grass? I know my buddies who work in real estate are like, take the sign down because my sign needs to go up. And there's too much static on this block right now with these, with these political signs. Midterm elections, take, take, a, take another look at the data for a second. We as Christians, we as Christians are just as polarized and just as ticked off as non-believers. When we do the census material for, for Christians, maybe some of us in the room, we suffer from one of three emotions. This is what the survey says. Frustration, fear, or anger from someone across the aisle, the political aisle. And here's the challenge. You guys, we need to be aware of the echo chambers that we've created. 
whether it be the social media channels or the news that we subscribe to? Have we blocked out every single differing worldview that we disagree with? Every single thing that diverges, we can get everything we need reinforced on the daily. Beware if you find yourself trapped in this echo chamber of ideology and worldview because Jesus begs us with this scenario with the Samaritan woman. He he implores us. We have to surround ourselves with those who are different. We must surround ourselves with those who are different because the stakes, not just of eternity one day when someone loses their life or they go to meet Jesus, not just eternity one day, but like Bucky said last week, eternity that starts now and experiencing that life to the full. You guys, I don't think that our challenges in having these conversations is a lack of education. I don't think it's even a a fear of becoming stumped in the conversation. I think that our problem, our biggest hurdle, you guys, is that we lack the sense of urgency. We lack the sense of urgency for engaging a soul so they could have life and life to the full on this side of heaven. So what does Jesus teach us about being swift and understanding the stakes that are at play here? We have to have an urgency, and he's a scandalous Jesus in this moment. Look at verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you had known the gift of God and who it was that said to you, give me some water to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said to, you, said to him, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself, along with his sons and his livestock. Jesus replied, everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. That's the key. You see, actually, Jesus is being very patient so far. This is a long conversation, but it's worth it to get some tools to do the surgery ourselves. She's still catching up. Jesus is being patient. He's being nuanced. You think he's being aggressive. If you're anything like me, you read this and you're like, dang, Jesus, slow it down. You're coming at her right now. Later on, he'll use the word. I always thought this was like a, like a 90s coming-of-age sitcom, like a line from one of those movies or one of those shows. He's like, woman? And I'm like, geez, take it easy, Lord. Like, that's aggressive. No, the word woman, you'll see it later on when it comes, is, is like madame or, or ma'am. He's being incredibly respectful. He's being totally patient as she's trying to catch up. But even more than that, he's using this device. He's using a device that's so relevant for every single one of our God conversations. And here it is. I want to ask a question. What is the turning point for someone coming to faith? What, what is the turning point for someone coming to faith? What is the thing that must happen for them to come around the corner? The answer, the answer is always a person coming to the end of themselves. A person coming to the end of themselves. The answer is need. Need. We've said it before, but you can't need a Savior if you at first admit you are not one. You cannot need a Savior if you don't first admit you are not one. Every single human being has to come to that place. For those who are sick, those who are ailing, those who are going in for surgery, they have had some time to diagnose their internal struggle. They didn't just figure that out the night before surgery. They have had some time to admit and confess their need if they're now at the surgical moment. So a person, make this specific for you right now in this moment, a person who's a friend, family member, neighbor, for that person, They must come to see that nothing in this world will satisfy. 
And here's the cue for you. If you're a Christian in the room, I don't care if you're coming back to church or you, you're new to church, great. You're going to have that sense of urgency thing down. But if you've been here a long time, I especially want you to hear this. Before we fix their lives, before we fix their lives, before we make sure that they are obsessed with the Bible and they fix their eyes and they're drinking from it daily, before they even pray the prayer, this is the aim that comes first. There is a need that's established within this woman's heart. Jesus gets that. He knows what he's after. He's doing the tough, meticulous work of carving away the webbing of the wounds and deep scars from this woman's life. A person who gets into surgery, they admit this. They know this. Verse 14. It says, whoever drinks drinks some of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Springing up. This is a word that I like. This is a word that has maybe, for better or worse, dictated my life, my life's calling. Springing up is this word. The original word is halomeno. Halomeno. It means like leaping up. It's a jumping movement only here described, uh, used here to describe water. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe a guy like Samson, you know, this big, buff, bulky dude, strong, bullheaded dude. It's used to describe Saul when he gets anointed king. The spirit jumped on him or jumped from him. And now we have John using, or we have Jesus using this word to describe the water. And and, and here's where you're going to learn something so essential about what John does in his gospel. John is always, ever, trying to marry absolute essential elements of life with God and Jesus. Most essential elements we need to survive, light, water, bread. And so it's true, you guys, that that has to describe our witness. When we're having conversations with people that are far from God, hurt by the church, do not go to church, do not know Jesus, with our, with our description of our faith and our lives, does the grace of God in our personal lives bubble over? Does it jump out like a geyser, like a spring, overwhelming or is it like my friend Vance describes, if you have the Flourish workbook, you'll see the little the, the sentence in there. Or is it our personal water bottle? When we come to faith, when we come to the saving relationship with Jesus, we've experienced that free gift, and we have it, and it's like our little insulated coffee cup. It's our drink that stays ice cold all day long, and it's just for me. That's a challenge for every single one of us to know that this spring of new life that you have, you've got a taste of life and life to the full. You've experienced that, that good news, that new life, that it goes in and through you and overflows out onto the world. That's what Jesus is doing with this woman. If you knew, here's the challenge, if you knew the exact operation needed, if you knew the answer, wouldn't it overflow from you? Wouldn't it be worth it? Wouldn't you give someone the solution in that moment? I think you would. I think all of us want to. So, You've got to get ready for what happens next. This is the most shocking part. This, this truly is shocking. There's some normal stuff. There's some gracious stuff. Jesus is patient. He's the patient surgeon. But this next one, I think, is where it does kind of take a turn, and it's a little bit wild for me. Okay, this is verse 15. This is what it says. The woman said to him, Sir, give me that water every day that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't want to do it anymore. Verse 16. He said to her, Go and call your husband to, and come back here. Verse 16. Go and get your husband and come back here first, by the way. She still doesn't understand what's going on. She's thinking she gets a a pragmatic uh, uh, physical need met. She's thinking, sweet, 
No more water the rest of my days. Cool. I'm going to be hydrated all day long. So she's still catching up, and Jesus is being patient with her. Second, and here's where I feel like it's shocking because it's personal, it's direct, it's a little bit abrupt, but it's also very nuanced what Jesus is doing. When you see that question, and you kind of, you're familiar with the story, which most of you are, if you, if you believe Jesus had the wisdom and knowledge of the world, and he knew the fact that she didn't have a husband, that she wasn't married, you're kind of like, dang, Jesus, you knew what you were doing. You were going to roast her, man. You told her to go get the husband. You knew she was going to say, I ain't married today. You knew that. What are you doing, man? That's harsh. That's aggressive. That's a little bit savage. But look it. Compare it. Here's where I will compare it for a second to, to, to today's standard of dialogue and conversation. We have to understand what, what does it look like today and today's standard of, of finger pointing and declarative statements. And we get into these flame wars, back to these political debates I mentioned before. And it's not so much a question as it is an accusation. That's the history of the church that we're up against, you guys. When we say from proclamation to conversation, what I want you to picture is, is you and I as the pastors, as the ministers, as the leaders, getting off the soapbox, off the corner with a picket sign, and saying, I have a question for you that is thoughtful and nuanced and personal. I'm not just here to point a finger and shout you down and say that you're condemned and you're going to hell. We have to have a mode that shifts, that changes in our operation. And I see Jesus doing this work with this woman. Actually, he's, he's asking a question. And, and here's what I would just have you write down. You need to write this down, okay? Because this is a huge tip. This is one of the greatest applicational tools of God conversations. We had a whole series on this, by the way. If you want to go back one whole series called God Conversations, this is a great tool. As you're dialoguing with people that view the world differently than you, I pray that we would have those meetings. As you're sitting down with people like that, here's what you need to think about. This is what Jesus did as the master surgeon. It means that we have to be more nuanced in our responses. There is pure and absolute truth. Do not get me wrong. We know that. We are holding on in those moments in a conversation that Jesus was God. He died and raised again so that we could have life and life to the full and life everlasting, period. Okay, that is a black and white truth. But in our conversations, for someone who hasn't arrived at that place yet, we can be nuanced with that person. It means being nuanced in our responses. It means being artful in our question asking. I know a friend here who's insane with his questions. He is a surgeon. He is a calculated surgeon with the types of questions he knows how to pull out of the heart of men. And I aspire to be in that place. How can I be more artful in my question asking? We need to be nuanced in our responses. We need to be artful in our questions. And finally, we need to be disciplined in our listening. We need to be disciplined in our listening. I will be the first to say that I'm the one, when I'm in a conversation like this, that I'm just queuing up my response. What does that mean? It means a part of my brain has already been shut down thinking about my answer. And I love that. I heard it from one of our staff members when I first started on at Watermark about a year ago. And they said, you're just listening to respond. You're not listening to hear. Do you know what a big piece of our emotional intimacy with a person, even a stranger or an acquaintance or a friend or a coworker? Do you know how much is lost if it feels like we're listening not to know them and see them and be present with them? Do you know how much is lost? That battle, that conversation is lost in that moment. We need to be disciplined in our listening. We have to get back to the art of listening. And Jesus was a master in this. He managed to appeal to her mind. He's appealing to her emotions. And then he's appealing to her conscience. He's gone through and done the amazing work of the surgery. And look at her response. 
Just look at her response for a second. This is her shortest answer. She's kind of a chatty Kathy in a lot of ways. She's ready to talk. She's asking questions. She's like, tell me more. Later on in a second, you'll see she's got challenges for Jesus. And this is the shortest part of the whole thing. What does she say? The woman replied, I have no husband. What happened? She's under conviction. Not judgment, not condemnation, not shame. She's under conviction about those scars and those wounds and those decisions that she willingly played into at certain points of her life. She has that necessary precursor, that need, boom, right there. The most beautiful thing that could have happened for her to arrive at that place. Here's what it says in Romans 3 in a reference to this. This is another book and another chapter. Romans 3 says this, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul's having this conversation about the Old Testament law, but what we can do by extension is say the word of God. John says, back to the gospel we're in, John says that Jesus himself is the word, living and breathing. He's laying down. In this picture, we have Jesus sitting down next to the Samaritan woman, and that speaks volumes about the stuff in her heart and life. It renders her silenced. Her shortest phrase, I have no husband, is because she's met the living God right there, the word. Apply that to the Bible that we have here today, the Bible that we have, to open that up in our conversations and see what happens Because we may think we're so not skilled. We're so not prepared. The conversation's going to fail. They're not going to be converted. Open the Bible and let the surgical work happen, even from the word of God. Because that's what it says about itself, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. That the Bible, that the word of God, Jesus, the life of Jesus, does not return void. It means you can send the word of God forward. You can send the life of Jesus forward. And it's going to reap. It's going to return. It's going to lead to flourishing. That is a tool that you can take to the bank tomorrow in your God conversations. I hope that you and me will apply that. This method to what Jesus is doing with this woman. You cannot have conversion without conviction. In that moment, this woman has felt the need. He has brought her all the way to that point. But, but is it done? Is it finished? Has he finished the work? No, he hasn't. This is where it just gets really funny. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Verse uh, 17. Jesus said to her, Right you are when you said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. This is, you said truthfully. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. What is she doing? What is she doing right now? What is she doing? That's right. She's averting. She's taking attention off herself. She's changing the subject. And what does she want to talk about? She wants to talk about religion. Because that's what we all do when we don't want to talk about the stuff that's in here that Jesus wants to get after. We much rather talk about politics or economics or religion. Years ago, years ago, I posted this like little know-nothing video to talk about why, why people leave in the church. I phrased it in the reverse question. I said, why, why you ought to leave the church? And I kind of flipped it on its head and I said, actually, you don't, I don't see a lot of good reasons, at least from the young people that I'm hearing from. And there was this person, I was so thankful, this is a person I don't know, total stranger from the internet, commented in the comment section of the YouTube video and said, how are there not more comments about this? I can give you lots of reasons why you should leave. How about the Old Testament and how it's misogynist and how it's anti-woman? And how about how there's so many other worldviews out there? She even listed paganism. That even paganism has a better thing going for itself than what you're talking about in the Old Testament. 
what you're talking about in the Bible. Let me ask you a question. People are angry. They're angry. But are they violently angry at an Old Testament book written thousands of years ago that they've never read, that they don't know, and that they don't really care about? Are they angry about an Old Testament book? Was this young lady, was she angry about that? This thing that took place supposedly a couple thousand years ago? I don't think so. And the principle from right here, what we learn and what Jesus is doing in this device and this tactic is that he makes it personal. He keeps it personal. He's trying to t- change the subject. She's trying to go over here and talk about worship and about religiosity. And Jesus is like, eh, come back over here. I want to talk about some of the work that needs to be done in your heart. That's what he's after. So for you, practically apply that right now to your lives. I love one of the guys from our staff, Joe, and he talks about how he won't let people off the hook. He's just over at the coffee shop, and he starts up the conversation, and someone might want to go over here, they want to go over there, and they want to change the subject, and he just lets it escalate. And I mean not in a dramatic fashion or an angry fashion. He'll let the conversation go there. Again, can you see full circle how a divinely appointed schedule makes more sense now? Can you see why we need that if we're even going to allow ourselves to get into a conversation? And let it escalate and let it get into the personal areas that matter most to people. This young woman, she's, she's yelling about this, but there's, there's a cry from this. Something else under the surface. And I try to respond and start a conversation with her, but that's why the internet's no good. Let's finish. Let's go to this next one. And guys from the band, you guys can come up here. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman. See, woman. A time is coming, madame, madame. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Your people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's he saying? Very simply, I'll just just reduce that and simplify it to this. He's saying it doesn't matter if you worship at this building or that building, that denomination or this denomination, that congregation or this congregation. Don't you get it? Your individual body will become a place of worship. That's the language from the scripture is that your body will be a temple. You guys have to understand that. Do we get that? Do we get that as believers? That worship is not just what transpires in 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. And worship is not just what transpires in an hour and 15 when someone brings the message on Sunday morning. That our lives are supposed to be worship expressions where someone can go and they can meet. Wow, look at this person right now. But not because of the person, but because of what they see through the person. They see this well, it's in the spring jumping out of this person. They cannot be resisted because someone has met the God of the universe and that God lives inside you and me. Those who have said yes to Jesus, they're going to they're experience what's called holiness because of your life of worship. Because you chose to live in conversation with God 24-7, not just one day a week. When you're in conversation with God throughout the week, other people want to be in that conversation. Let me tell you and promise you and guarantee you, when you're in conversation with God, when you're in communion with God, when your worship doesn't stop, other people will be invited to be a part of that light, part of that bread, part of that water. That's what I hear John saying in this gospel. And that's the encouragement. You guys want to know something as we wind down. You want to know the difference? You want to know the difference between the surgeon that I talk about at the top of our time, the medical surgeon, the doctor, and and me and you? The difference is is that we have the word of God. 
And we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We do not go alone. Here's what it, here's what it means. Remember I said that the Bible is a two-edged sword. It's so sharp. It cuts between bone and marrow. How is that even possible? How is that so laser tight? And, and I said earlier that the, the word does not return void. You know what that means? And the last, the last word in the book of Acts. So there's the gospel stories, and then there's the book of Acts, which is the story of the first church. And the last word in that book is unhindered. What I want you to hear and be encouraged by this morning is that when you go forth and you're in conversation with God, and maybe every now and then you open this thing up, this Bible, the Word of God, the living story of Jesus, it, there's no thing on heaven or earth that could hinder that Word from going forth. No matter of lack of training, no matter of nerves, no matter of fear, no matter of even censorship, if you're worried about this in this time and this place, no matter of that, could slow down the progress of the story of Jesus in your life, how it's been made personal, can go forth and impact someone else's life. Here's what I want to say as we come forward and we, and we take communion. Communion, uh, for those of you who are coming back to it or, or are not so certain because it just kind of feels like a ritual, there's tables at the front and the back, side to side. And communion is this wonderful moment where we get to um, receive Again, the grace and forgiveness of Christ. But we also get to take on the challenge to go reflect that into the world. In our, in our surgical conversations, we get to go reflect it. Here's what I would say, though. If there is needed surgery on your heart this morning, come to the table right now. Come to the table right now with all the wounds, with all the baggage, with all the hurt, with all the scar tissue. Come to the table right now and do that work with God through the cracker and through the grape juice. Yeah. Through the cracker and through the grape juice, do some work with God. Let him take those things. If you are unsettled, if you are uncertain, if you are hurt from something that just happened last week, bring it right now and he'll receive you like he did the Samaritan woman. All he saw was child of God. He did not see racial slur. He saw child of God. He saw his daughter. And that's what happens when you go to the table right now. He sees you as daughters and sons. Let that identity be restored right now as you take the cracker and you take the juice. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work that you're doing in my heart. Thank you for the work you're doing in the hearts right here and every single chair, Lord, as they come forward. I pray that they would receive in the cracker, in the juice, Lord God. I pray that they would receive the nourishment. I pray that they would receive even right now healing that they need, restoration that they need in those, those, those broken places, Lord, those tissues and sinews of their, of their hearts. Let them receive that and let them go forth and proclaim, yes, even proclaim through their conversation the Jesus that they have come to know on a personal and real tangible level. Pray this in Jesus' name. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.